Just before we start, we all know that there's a problem in academia with people not getting paid for the work they're doing, particularly younger scholars. We at the project want to be part of the solution and not part of the problem. So we need your help to do that. If you can afford to donate one pound a month to support this project and keep it free forever, please go to our Patreon page at patreon.com backslash project RS and sign up there. If you want to make a one-off donation, you can do that too through our PayPal button on the homepage. But together we can help to change the culture of exploitation in academia. That's patreon.com backslash project RS. Now here's the episode. Hello, dear listeners. It's another Monday and another Religious Studies Project podcast for your ears. I'm David Robertson. And I'm Christopher Carter. And once again, you're seeing behind the curtain and hearing that we're still on our snow day, stuck speaking over Skype. We're just going to pass straight over to our esteemed colleague, uh, Dr. Steve Sutcliffe, who's the president of the British Association for the Study of Religions. And he's going to introduce this panel that happened back on the 17th of January in the University of Edinburgh. We'll be hearing from myself and David, from Steve, Stephen and Suzanne, on the, the broad topic of engaging the public and the impact of religious studies and the specific perspective of the British Association for the Study of Religion. Okay, well, thanks for waiting on a bit. Sorry about the delay in getting started. Because um, impact and knowledge exchange are so much of a discourse of day for academics, you know, whether you're still a research student or you've got a post, we thought it would be useful to have some kind of brief event where each of us from the, the Committee of the British Association for the Study of Religions said a few words about what they thought some of the challenges and issues of that uh, were for the study of religions, for religious studies in particular. So we tried to put together this panel to tie in with a, a committee meeting of the British Association of Study of Religions, which we've just come hot foot from in the McIntyre room, because of course our committee members live all over the country. And Stephen in particular has come up from Wolverhampton and spent most of the day on the train, even getting here. And Suzanne, who will be familiar to some of you as a former student here, has come up from Leeds. So we thought we'd build them in one place. Let's also do some kind of outward-facing uh, event. Uh, so we've got four brief informal presentations from each of the folks here, David Robertson, Christopher Cotter, Stephen Gregg and Suzanne Owen. And I thought I'd introduce it first with just a few words on the perspective of the British Association for the Study of Religions insofar as it represents religious studies scholars and study of religion scholars in the UK. And some of this will be familiar to some of you, but it may be less familiar uh, to others. And we're not giving you a kind of official line. This isn't a BASR statement. It's just individual committee members' views on this, what they call in the old cliched uh, media, the burning issues of our time. So the British Association, just a very little bit, bit of history then to kind of, um, this is me by the way, I'm Stephen Sutcliffe when I'm not teaching here. Uh, I'm also been president of the British Association the study of religions the last two and a half years. So the BASR began in, in 1954, and it was part of an organization called the International Association for the History of Religions, which was set up in 1950. And then later on, BASR in 1999 helped to launch the European Association for the Study of Religions, which is very much still in business. And we actually hosted the European Association's first annual conference in, in Cambridge that year. We began in the mists of time with a dozen or so members in what seems to have been a fairly clubby style based around, you know, Oxford, Cambridge and London. But we've now grown to about 180 fee-paying members and we've helped very much in getting the membership list nice and lean with all paying members with our, our, our membership uh, treasurer. Chris Cotter here. We publish an electronic bulletin twice a year and we publish a journal around once a year. We hold archives of the bulletin and other papers in the Bodleian Library in Oxford and uh, one of our members, Chris Cotter again, is currently completing a small project on the oral and documentary history of the British Association which we hope to build on in the future for some more grant funding to get a larger history of the study of religions in the UK. 
past presidents in which august tradition I'm very proud to stand have included Ninian Smart, Geoffrey Parinder, Ursula King, Kim Knott and Marion Bowman. So I give you this institutional background just to be sure that you realise that we've got about 60 years plus of um, a learned society promoting the study of religions in the UK. We define ourselves in this way, which is consonant with the International Association for the History of Religions and the European Association for the Study of Religions. The object of BASR is to promote the academic study of religions understood as a historical, social theoretical, critical and comparative study of religions through the interdisciplinary collaboration of all scholars whose research is defined in this way. BASR is not a forum for confessional, apologetic or similar concerns. Most members of our association have social science or humanities backgrounds and are interested in working across religions in a comparative and theoretically informed way, looking to analyse wider patterns in behaviour and belief, including, importantly, the history and uses of the category religion. Our scholarship is not normatively committed to particular traditions or worldviews, and so while some of our members include the study of theology in their portfolios, we don't practice, we don't do theology per se. We think, coming to this question of impact and engagement, we think in the lifetime of the association, of course, before the association, because the study of religions in at least the European context goes back to at least the mid-late 19th century, We think we've developed an excellent store of knowledge about religions and religion and we transmit the store of knowledge to our students and we disseminate it in our publications. But of course, the call for demonstrating impact and engagement out with classroom and conference has brought us a new set of challenges like most academic fields. So, well and good, we're just like other learned societies and disciplinary fields in the modern academy. We've got to come to grips now with this added level of work in our already packed portfolios, this added work about engaging with the knowledge we produce and having a social and public impact of the knowledge we produce. However, the category religion is bound up with an especially complex set of issues and positions that permeates education, politics church-state relations, media and law, to name just a few fields. Now, I'm not arguing that there's something special about religion, but I am arguing that it's particularly heavily freighted and loaded with assumptions and, uh, and contestations that bring an unusual set of issues for us to deal with in our field. So that's happening. At the same time, specific named religious traditions, of course, have developed their own associations since 1954, or perhaps they pre-existed in 1954 anyway, their own journals and conferences in an era of increasing specialisation. So that raises the question of what the general theoretical comparative study of religions might be for in terms of exchanging our knowledge and uh, impacting with our knowledge. Uh, that's really the thing that faces us as an organisation whose raison d'etre is to work theoretically with the historical concept of religion and then comparatively across more than one tradition or example. So that's kind of a you know, very brief potted history where BASR comes from, what it sees itself as having been doing effectively and where we are now. The arrival of knowledge, exchange and impact. Impact was 20% in the 2014 REF and will be 25% in the 2021 REF is now a particular challenge for us. So this little informal panel is specifically about what impact is religious studies making and what knowledge is it exchanging. So having said that, I want to now open, uh, open the way to our first contribution on that theme, and it's uh, Dr. Stephen Gregg from the University of Wolverhampton. Thank you, everybody. Always nice to uh, be in Edinburgh. My first ever BASR conference uh, as a not-so-young postgraduate student uh, was in Edinburgh, I think, back in 2007. Um, so it's very nice to be back here, uh, and thank you to Steve and Naomi uh, for organising this. I've just got a little 10-minute slot, and I'm going to try not to be too formal uh, in this, because what I want to talk to you about 
is based on some uh, research and thinking that I've uh, developed in recent conference papers and also in a recent article uh, specifically for the bulletin uh, of the British Association uh, for the Study uh, of Religions. And that's really asking questions about religious studies, or the place, I should say, of religious studies in public discourse in the United Kingdom. And by that, I mean political discourse, I mean media discourse, but I also mean interdisciplinary discourse. Not to argue that we're at a juncture in the history of the academic study of religion, because I'm slightly concerned that we've become uh, a muted uh, voice. Uh, you're probably familiar with Charlotte Hardman's term of muted voices. She um, uh, used this to look at uh, female uh, participants uh, in some of her early anthropology in the 70s uh, and 80s. Um, but a muted voice for Hardman is those groups whose medium of articulation is not easily grasped by other sectors of the population, groups who are marginal or submissive to the dominant power group. And quite simply, I want to argue that religious studies, I think, has become a muted voice. I think this is important particularly, and I want to agree with Steve, that there's nothing special about religion. I'm not having a sweet generous argument at this point. But the fact remains is that everybody has an opinion on religion. If you are an accountant, you don't go to dinner parties and people get really het up about accountancy methodologies. A friend of mine that did his PhD at the same time as me, who was studying barnacles in Swansea Bay. Um, you know, when he goes to dinner parties, people don't have an opinion on barnacles in Swansea Bay. When you tell people that you're studying religion, everyone has an opinion about religion, usually informed by the Daily Mail, but that's a slightly separate issue. And there's a serious point behind this, which is that those of us that would like to consider ourselves at the cutting edge of methodology and the discipline of religious studies are, I think, becoming a muted voice. I would argue even within the wider study of religion. This comes out really of changes to approaches to religious studies in recent years, um, particularly the shift away from the world religions paradigm towards a new paradigm, which is variously called vernacular religion, lived religion, living religion, everyday religion. We're still arguing about the terminology uh, there. And this really rests on scholarship from Premiano, Ammerman, Orsi, Harvey, Maguire, uh, and I've made some modest contributions to this debate myself. And this examination of lived or living religion preferences people, not texts, practices rather than beliefs. And this cutting edge uh, of uh, the study of religion, I want to argue, is absent when we look at media discourse, political discourse, and crucially interdisciplinary discourse when it approaches uh, the study of religion in different contexts. And I want to give you just a couple of examples of this, because I'm, I'm very aware that we're uh, short on time here. One example is political discourse. You may have noticed in the cabinet reshuffle last week that one of the new faces is Raymond Chisti, um, who is a Conservative MP uh, of British Asian uh, heritage. And under the old government of David Cameron, uh, he consistently lobbied uh, parliament uh, to lose to use the term Daesh instead of ISIS uh, when it was talking uh, about the uh, terrorist group uh, in uh, Syria uh, and Iraq. And he did this uh, on the grounds that he didn't want the word Islam or anything to do with Islamic linked with a terrorist uh, organization. And I totally understand the political expediency for that uh, and help with community uh, relations. But the problem I have with this, and, and this isn't a deep analysis of ISIS, this is really isn't the time and the place for that. But the problem I have with that is the assumption behind it, which is that anyone that commits a violent act in the name of religion isn't a real Muslim. Or if we're thinking of suicide bombings in Sri Lanka in the civil war, they're not real Buddhists. Or, you know, sexual abuse by clergy isn't something that a real Christian would do. And this understanding of religion as a benign act, this essentialism and reductionism of what religion is, takes away the everyday experience of people that I hope you disagree with. I hope you think these are horrible people if they're committing violence in the name of religion, but they are doing so in the name of religion. And so what we get is a confessional, theological approach to what religion is, essentializing it in this benign uh, uh, hermeneutic circle, which I think uh, mutes the voice of people that are understanding the everyday experiences uh, of uh, these religious practitioners, whether we agree with their actions uh, or not. This saturates public discourse uh, within the media, uh, within politics. Uh, it's always faith leaders 
uh, that are uh, interviewed. Um, it's never an expert on a particular religion. It's always the local imam or someone from the you know, British Council of Muslims or someone from the Hindu Council of Britain uh, or so on. Um, and again, we're preferencing this notion uh, of confessionalism. Uh, we can see the um, new initiative of the Religion Media Centre. We can think of religious literacy projects that have run out of several uh, universities in recent years. We can think of the Archbishop of Canterbury saying how important it was, just in, in the last few months he said this, that we improve religious literacy. Well, I don't think anyone in this room would disagree with that. But whose understanding of religion are we going to improve the literacy of? The confessional theological understanding of the Archbishop of Canterbury or the academic study of religion in diverse contexts. This filters down uh, through uh, education systems uh, as well. You can think of our recent, or current I should say, uh, education policies where the study of religion is not a part of the national curriculum but is still a legal requirement to teach. In schools, and I have to say I'm not an expert on the Scottish uh, education system, but certainly uh, within England, religion is something to do, not something to study. It is something that is practiced and that is confessional from its starting point. And it concerns me that religious studies has become a muted voice uh, within this discourse. Just very briefly, I want to talk about interdisciplinary contexts. If we're changing what we mean by religion, by looking at everyday practices, by people uh, instead of texts, practices instead of beliefs, if we're understanding mundane everyday actions as religious action, then when we talk to an art historian, or an archaeologist, or a museum curator, or someone in textual analysis, and we're using the same terms but meaning radically different things, how is that working in an interdisciplinary way? I wonder that we're often having divergent, not convergent, uh, conversations. But I don't want to be completely negative about this. Um, I want to suggest that there are solutions. Talking um, to Steve about this informally, he's used a, a phrase a couple of times which has pricked my ears up. And, and Steve Sutcliffe has said that we need a Ninian smart moment, which is we need a new sort of revolution as to what the study of religion is, perhaps beyond uh, the religious studies of the late uh, 20th century. And I think we need to start by looking at public discourse and focusing specifically on diversity. And I think it's very simple and we make small simple steps. Because when you're trying to explain to a journalist that actually this is complicated, that's not what a journalist wants. They want a soundbite, uh, they want public discourse about our academic disciplines to be simple and to be black and white. Well, binaries don't work anymore, we know that. Look at religious identity, belonging, insider, outsider, doesn't work with uh, binaries. So I want us to make those first small steps uh, by focusing uh, on diversity and particularly uh, hyper-diversity. Uh, and if we take those small steps, perhaps the religious studies cutting edge, this new move away from textbook essentialisms of Christians believe this or Hindus uh, do that, uh, can filter down into public discourse about lived religious experiences beyond the textbook uh, boundaries of identities and practices. Thank you. All right, thanks very much, Stephen. I will move swiftly on. So we'll have the four presentations and then we'll have dedicated time for discussion uh, about the themes arising. So very pleased to welcome back uh, Dr. Suzanne Owen, who uh, studied here for, her, here for her PhD and her undergraduate degree and is now reader uh, in religious studies at uh, University of Leeds Trinity. And I think Suzanne is going to address the question of, I mentioned the category of religion and how this was um, you know, a, a, an important part of the expertise of our field. And she's going to look at a case study where expertise in how categories are used actually does have some quite um, important impact. Yes, well, um, hello. So I'm going to talk about a charity registration of a particular case and showing as an area where uh, scholars of religion have had some impact and where they could have even more. And this case in particular uh, shows these points. So the charity registration is one means by which a group can claim status as a religion in the UK as groups must also prove that their religious activities are for public benefit as a charity, this then domesticates religion by forcing groups to conform to perhaps liberal Protestant Christian values that religion is a force for good and benign. It is interesting to examine how groups negotiate this criteria for religion as defined by public bodies in order to highlight both the problems with defining religion and how the state marginalizes groups that do not fit their criteria by denying them access to certain benefits. 
Not only is conforming to state definitions of religion a challenge for groups, but according to Matthew Harding in his book on charity law and the liberal state, in charity law we find that state we find the state marking out certain purposes as charitable according to contested conceptions of what is the good, and then extending legal privileges to the citizens who pursue those purposes. So taking a critical religion approach, similar to the work of Timothy Fitzgerald and others, to examine critically the social processes whereby certain groups are counted as religions, um, as James Beckford um, also noted, in my, um, we can really see how the category of religion operates in public discourse and then actually creates a kind of public conception of religion that gives it status and legitimacy. And so in my case, the focus on how the category of religion operates in charity registration cases looks at how religion is framed in charity law and then interpreted by the commissioners. And these commissioners are not religion specialists, as you can imagine. They come from um, law and economics and um, other areas like that. So they are using a kind of folk understanding of religion in their conception that's been handed down through case study, uh, case law. Um, so the case of the Druid Network was for registering as a charity in England and Wales. So Scotland, of course, has got a separate um, commission for registering charities. And so the Druid Network case was only for England and Wales. But there is uh, groups in Scotland, of course, that have had their own negotiations with the state. So charity registration as a religion, as I said, this kind of folk understanding religion that has been passed down through the generations defines religion in a certain way, um, which is based on their understandings and experience of religion in this country, mainly liberal Protestant Christian. So the criteria is belief in a supreme being or entity, worship of the supreme being or entity, theological cohesion and ethical framework. So every religion or group that wants to be registered as a religion needs to prove this criteria or show evidence of it. And some groups have failed to do this, like Scientology and the Gnostic Center um, and the Pagan Federation as well. But the Druid Network's success has made it a significant case in law because it actually altered the definition of religion um, in charity law slightly. And much of their success was seems to be due to the influence of the scholar of religions, um, scholarship on religions, particularly a statement that was sent in with the application by uh, Graham Harvey at the Open University in Religious Studies. And um, this was um, cited repeatedly in the decision document that you can get online through the, where you can get the charity commission decisions documents, and they are repeatedly citing his statement as an authority for giving them a reason, a justification to grant charity registration to the Druid Network as a religion. So the problems for the, um, the initial application by the Druid Network was they had problems trying to fulfill the criterion of belief in a supreme being or entity. And the Druid Network wanted to present the concept of nature as this supreme entity. And they failed in their first application, but as I said, in their second application, um, with Graham Harvey's statement, they gained success and were able to convince the charity commissioners that um, nature could be conceived of as a supreme being or entity. And thus they've, well, in my view, they haven't actually changed the definition of religion, but they've expanded it. This is definitely an issue because after their registration, it was thought that other pagan groups would have an easier time. And this is not the case because the pagan federation's application came after or one of their applications and they still failed. And they failed on theological cohesion. And they contacted me because um, they knew that I was working on the Druid Network case. And basically, I think for them, they would have to either present themselves as a single religion, which they don't at the moment. They are an umbrella of different pagan groups. Or to challenge the definition of religion in charity law. And as far as I know, they're not going to do that anymore. And they've now decided to apply as a different, in a different category, like for education or some other purpose. But still, they need to register as a charity. I mean, their groups have to register as something if they're non-profit and so forth. So 
not for religion for them, it seems. So I think the next step then is like Eileen Barker has also written lots of um, witness statements or supporting statements, should I say, for <laughs> groups. She, she wrote one for the Pagan Federation at one time. And when the, they failed, she wrote something along the lines reported by Michael York that um, if they don't accept the goddess as a supreme being, then they're sexist, kind of something along those lines that, that Michael York had reported. Um, so we are already being employed to write uh, statements for groups applying for charity registration as a religion. And I think that more that um, we are involved in such cases, maybe the more we can have influence on trying to erode the kind of uh, popular conceptions of what religion might be. But then beyond that, there's also the issue of why have a separate category of religion at all for charities? The charity's work is um, you know, for public benefit. Why does there need to be a distinction between a religious charity and a non-religious charity? And this special sort of status of religion, I think, does not make a huge great doesn't make a huge sense in religion and just ties them in knots constantly when they're trying to define whether a group is religious or not. This is an area where we can look more broadly at how the category of religion is operating and also how it is actually a hindrance and a problem within the state as well. So we're looking at the discourse and conception of religion. So what that means, of course, the implications of that is, uh, is there something called religion? and that we can see and define. And my view, of course, is that it, it is a part of discourse. It is a kind of a, a construction. And But the state does not see religion that way. It sees it as sui generis, as something that is unique and self, you know, it's something that emerges out of self in distinction to politics, economics, and culture and other areas. But by doing that, you marginalize and limit the activity of religions. And so that they are not meant to be political. They're not meant to be making profit. The problems that, um, with Scientology is that perhaps they're seen as a business, and that is an issue. They might not state that, but it might be an underlying bias. And the same thing, they, the, the way that the, um, governments get angry every time the archbishop says something political, because religions aren't meant to be political. So you can see how this sort of permeates throughout the discourse. And when you study the discourse on religion, you can see these patterns, and also the conception of religion as being inherently good as well that plays into that. So lots of areas where we can actually look at these discourses and how they are defined in law. Thank you. Okay, so we move on to another kind of case study where there is impact going on. I mean, in Suzanne's talk there, it's interesting to see that uh, a key witness then for the Charity Commission is a, a scholar of religions, a senior scholar of religions uh, and the religious studies tradition in the UK. So there's something going on there, even if um, there's room for changing the definition or pushing further at that. But there's impact from the scholar. This time I've got uh, Dr. Chris Cotter here, who's going to talk about another example, an empirical example of impact, this time within the wider scholarly arena of uh, student knowledge spread around the world, which is one of the criteria of impact, was one of the criteria of impact in the 2014 and will be in, again in 2021, probably with an expanded remit. In other words, the ability of scholars to affect classroom understanding and pedagogical disseminations of good ideas and cutting-edge theories and research on religion, a particular focus on postgraduate students. So Chris will tell you about the Religious Studies Project that he co-founded with David here. Indeed. <clears throat> and as our business cards say, what I've got up here, the Religious Studies Project Podcasts, Opportunities, Debate. And this, um, we're actually recording for the Religious Studies Project now. We'll not be recording your discussion, so feel free to, to speak freely. So the, the RSP began in May 2011 when David and I met in the bar of TV at Row House and decided to record a couple of audio interviews with scholars that were passing through this very Edinburgh RS seminar series and formally launching in January 2012. It's become a truly international collaborative enterprise. We're currently headline sponsored by the BASR 
also the North American Association for the Study of Religions and the International Association for the History of Religions. In September 2017, we became a Scottish Charitable Incorporated Organization, so one of those educational charities that Suzanne was mentioning. By this point, we had uh, amassed over 250 podcasts of around 30 minutes each, with leading scholars on cutting-edge theoretical, methodological, and empirical issues in the study of religion. In combination with regular response essays that reflect on, expand upon, or critique the podcast output. And by September 2017, listeners had downloaded our podcast over 400,000 times, with new podcasts averaging over 1,000 downloads in their first week, growing to over 7,000 for some of the more established ones. The website receives over 150,000 hits per year, and we're currently followed by over 4,700 accounts on Facebook and 4,200 on Twitter. But why do podcasts at all? So back in 2012, we could see a number of advantages to the podcast format. Um, we thought about our own consumption of the medium. They provided us with company when engaged in lonely, solitary tasks, a feeling of community, personally curated 24-7 radio station on topics of interest, and an accessible entry point to a wide variety of topics. But where was the podcast for our chosen discipline, the academic study of religion? So we decided to start recording the podcast that we wanted to hear. And this format, we think, democratizes knowledge and humanizes knowledge production by giving listeners a chance to hear academics talking naturally and offering an introduction to topics somewhere between a Wikipedia entry and a sort of full-length journal article or book. A lot of material can be covered in half an hour, yet this can be digested at the listener's own pace time and time again ad infinitum. And um, regardless of our position in the field, we all have to focus our reading and a podcast can help fill those gaps that we don't have time to you know, read and keep it, help us to keep up with uh, the latest research and current perspectives on older scholars and themes. But also in an era of departmental streamlining and closure and with increasing isolation and stress brought on by the marketization of education and by limited budgets for conference participation, etc. Regularly listening to a podcast, we hope, can provide a vital connection to the world outside the confines of one's own institution that can be academically stimulating and provide a sense of community and common purpose. And similarly, given the increasing pressure to relate research to public interest and to make sure that our research is accessible for the public and has impact, recording a podcast is a simple and efficient way to disseminate research freely and accessibly to thousands of potentially interested listeners and in perpetuity. So in setting up the RSP, we quickly adopted an attitude of don't wait to be given permission. And this attitude has pervaded our output to this day. The point wasn't merely to replicate existing academic structures and outputs, but to complement, challenge, or expand upon them. And indeed, it's unclear whether we would have been able to build anything like the resource that we have had we been bound by a department or by an institution because of the issues of justifying the cost in time and resources for each episode, slow-moving checks and balances, and the inbuilt conservatism of institutions. But after we'd built up a reputation, however, it's been encouraging to see these existing academic structures engaging with RSP outputs in the form of citations, entries into course syllabi, and the occasional more creative or innovative engagement. But all of that being said, it's not been plain sailing, and we've been on the receiving end of a number of important criticisms over the years, the most frequent of which has surrounded the quality of our audio, which we've been consistently improving over the years and which I'm not going to dwell on here, but, uh, you know, again, try producing your own free podcast. <laughs> but related to this, it was pointed out along the way that our podcasts might be problematic resources for listeners, for, for example, for whom English was not their uh, first language or indeed for, you know, how were people with hearing impairments going to be accessing all of this scholarship. So, although we do still try and maintain a level of irreverent humor that's characterized the podcast from the beginning, I think, and we decided that a bit more professionalism on our part would reduce the opportunity for things to be lost in translation. And we've also recently begun to transcribe our podcast, which means that they can now be more easily cited and utilized in the classroom. And this also softens some of the barriers surrounding spoken English. But of course, that adds a lot in terms of time and costs. You know, a half an hour podcast can take two, three, four hours to transcribe. On a different note, 
given our, so by our I'm referring to David and I, our situatedness is two white, relatively privileged, relatively heterosexual British men who've been closely associated with the RS system at the University of Edinburgh for over a decade, and who have very specific, very niche research interests, it's hardly surprising that despite our best intentions, RSP output has not been as wide-ranging, representative, or diverse as it arguably should be. A simple lack of resources is partly to blame, including time and money to fund travel, etc., as is the need for a timely and topical content. You know, if we're faced with a choice between a less-than-ideally representative collection of scholars or not recording anything at all, we've generally opted for the former. A more cynical response to all of this might be to ask, well, who made us the police of religious studies? We started this free podcast. Well, why should we bother? We've been producing this resource for over five years in our spare time with very limited resources. So, of course, there's going to be omissions. Of course, things will slip through the net. And, of course, we will unintentionally repeat and reinforce some of the inequalities that plague the field globally and in our UK context. And whilst there is undoubtedly some truth in this cynical response, we are keenly aware, however, that we do have a great deal of responsibility. We had this responsibility when we started, even though we may not have realized it. But this is particularly the case now, given our growing position of authority in the field and our uh, recently acquired charitable status and the fact that we're sponsored by some of the highest bodies in religious studies. It's not just our reputation that's on the line anymore. So although we might be irreverent, we hope that we do take things seriously and we are trying to become more proactive than reactive. Controversies have thus far been relatively few and far between and we like to think that when something has gone awry and problems have been pointed out, we've been gracious, understanding and attempted to move forward in a manner that will preserve the existing ethos of the RSP whilst incorporating the critique, learning from it and putting measures in place to ensure that things are different in future. And we can maybe talk more about that later. There will, of course, always be more to be done. I'm onto my final page now. The, the name Religious Project, Religious Studies Project, we deliberately chose this to be ambitious. As we've heard already, the discipline is at a crossroads. Departments are being squeezed due to cuts and the neoliberalization of the academy. The subject is, as we've also heard, being balkanized into departments, being made up of multiple area studies scholars who don't seem to have the time or interest in cross-cultural comparison or theoretical issues necessarily. Religion is a more prominent aspect of public and political discourse than it has been for decades, yet seems that our analysis is not being sought or heard. Our larger project then with a capital P is to get religious studies the voice that it deserves. No one knows what RS does. We can help to change that. We believe that these topics are intrinsically interesting and we know that a person talking naturally about a subject that they're passionate about is always engaging. However, too few of us know how to actually go about this and these are not skills that we're typically trained in as academics and moreover, the current academic climate, we'll see how this developed, rewards us for work aimed only at our peers and all but inaccessible to the public in journals, conferences, committees, etc. The RSP here has built a platform for scholars to put forward research for free and in a way that anyone can understand, which after all should be a central concern for the publicly funded intellectual. Thinking beyond podcasting and RS, what can others take from this? There's an important difference of approach between the RSP and traditional academic platforms. Had we sought perfect audio, an ideal website, and perfectly diverse participants from day one, the project would arguably never have happened, and certainly not keeping to a weekly schedule. Like Facebook's original motto, which was move fast and break things. We used an iterative model where we try a lot of things and improve on what's working as we go along. And in this way, our publishing model is closer, we think, to journalism or software development than traditional academia. But this may be an approach that academia needs to embrace in future. That one perfect journal article behind a paywall that belongs to another age and it's only really serving your own ego or publishing houses. If you want the public to listen, they have to be able to hear you. Okay, thanks very much, Chris. On to David Robertson now. Dr. David Robertson of the Open University is going to ask a very clearly defined question. <laughs> Who are we speaking to? I hope I can give a clearly defined answer. Okay, to slip into business speak for a little minute. Um, if this has been a SWOT analysis of the field, then um, the previous panels have been mostly on the strengths and weaknesses, but I want to focus instead on threats 
and opportunities. Um, so as not to, because I'm last, not to end on too pessimistic a note, I'm going to start with the threats. But I want to say before I start that I think it's vitally important that we honestly and fe- uh, seriously face the issues before us because I don't think you can answer a question until you correctly understand the question. In short, I think that the current muted voice of RS is not the issue per se, but is rather a symptom of larger currents, of which I think RS is particularly vulnerable. The first is sort of detraditionalization and anti-elitism. Now, I'm sure I don't need to point out to anybody here that traditional institutions are increasingly challenged. The scholar can no longer expect their word to simply be accepted as authoritative. I think this will ultimately be for the best, but it will certainly require those of us who are interested in speaking to the public to realize that ours is but one voice in a marketplace. This means we need to make the effort to speak directly to that marketplace. We need to speak and write plainly and simply and importantly without appeals to intrinsic authority. And we need to sometimes put aside concerns that are of primary interest to specialists. But the bigger issue is not only whether the public can hear us, it's whether they even want to. For the public to regain trust in academia like other institutions, we need to demonstrate its value to them. Why is it in the interest of the public to have a non-confessional social scientific study of religion? And who is making that case? Secondly is uh, marketization, neoliberalization of the university. Scholarship is expected to show public impact, yet academics also need to produce refable work for a closed academic market, as Chris was saying. This leaves us between two stools and our working hours uh, further squeezed. Uh, This is further the case because of uh, high fees are driving more and more attention onto the quality of our teaching. Again, another thing, but another factor that's taking our time away. The economic uh, value of qualifications is increasingly stressed. It's not an easy case to make for RS uh, to a lay audience. And emphasis on citizenship and morality means that secondary RE now has very little to do with tertiary RS. And the third point I want to raise is that uh, the growth of identity politics means that public intellectuals are increasingly required to speak from a particular insider uh, position, which is something that Stephen mentioned. And for public discourse and religion, this favours apologetic scholarship over critical scholarship. For policymakers in such a climate, scholarship is only useful insofar as it eases tension between identity groups. So to sum up, at present, successful public intellectuals in the field of RS are generally those whose work addresses and usually supports identity politics, citizenship and economic factors. Indeed, why would public institutions want to hear from or support a project which seeks to destabilise ideas seen as essential to social order and to individual self-identity? We need to address this issue seriously and convincingly beyond a ref panel or the British Academy. However, to turn to opportunities now. The question posed by Stephen, why are we being ignored, leads to the question, well, who are we speaking to? Um, And this is important because different groups have different needs and different expectations. So we've heard from Suzanne talking about the law. We've heard from Chris talking about the university. But there are other audiences, such as education uh, at secondary level in schools. RE is a requirement in schools in the UK, but has long been underfunded and undersupported. Certainly a legacy of public sector cuts and an outdated assumption that secularisation meant that it would ultimately become unnecessary anyway. The conversation, though, has come back recently, starting with Linda Woodhead and Charles Clark's A New Settlement, Religion in Schools, 2015, which built off the Westminster faith debates but has a rather normative Christian position which troubles many RS scholars, myself included, and an emphasis on themes of citizenship, tradition and morals. It did, however, help kickstart a long overdue discussion. This year's We Need to Talk About Religious Education Manifestos for the Future of RE, edited by Mark Castelli and Mark Chater, um, is a much bolder contribution which offers a number of manifestos for the future of RE and argues that leaders of the RE community are struggling to make clear and safe positioning between the wreckage of old assumptions and the messy, incomplete birth of the new. These changes are in the part the responsibility of RS, but we've been slow to take up the challenge. There's definitely been some progress, however, and a number of colleagues have become much more involved in teaching and learning issues, particularly Dominic Corrywright of uh, Oxford Brookes, who was until recently a committee member of the BASR, and uh, Wendy Dossett of uh, Chester. Um, The BASR's new teaching award was designed to reward and highlight such work. 
but we still need uh, increased clarity on the function of RE at secondary level and how that relates to the function of RS at tertiary level. And indeed, should those subjects be necessarily related? Uh, a fourth uh, audience is media, which Stephen talked briefly about, but I would like to add a slightly more positive note. The old media is on its last legs. Newspapers and TV channels as we know them today won't exist in 10 years' time. Long-form media, however, like documentary series and podcasts, are growing year on year. We're in a unique position uh, to be able to seize the means of production here, but it requires clear ideas, strategies, and above all, action. The media, the traditional media, still thinks in terms of sensation and conflict, but at the same time there's a move to long-form documentary work which is allowing for greater subtlety and nuance. Ben Zeller's recent involvement with the 10-hour podcast series on Heaven's Gate, which just concluded, is a great example. By compromising slightly, he was able to influence the series producers enough that it was by far the fairest and most sympathetic portrait ever in the media, not only of that group, but of an apocalyptic new religion, full stop. I'm at present involved in the early stages of two similar projects, although on a much smaller scale. Um, And in both cases, simply setting out some of the historical background to the producers to show that these ideas do not simply just spring from nowhere has been enough to influence the direction that the project's going in. If we consider how much time we spend on journal papers and the return on our investment, this is obviously worth doing. And there is no real reason why such projects can't be part of a ref submission. It's something that other disciplines do all the time. The final one I want to bring up briefly is policymakers including security. Now, Inform uh, has had a great uh, influence here, as Suzanne mentioned already. But recently, Kim Knott and Matt Francis um, of Lancaster have uh, done some great work with the Crest Project on security and terrorism. Suzanne Newcomb from Inform and myself took part in a workshop in London for Whitehall and MI6 recently that they organised. And actually, the RS-focused papers were among the most responded to of the entire event. Similarly, the massive European Union project on conspiracy theories, COST, also involves a large number of RS colleagues who, again, have had considerable impact there. Similarly, the Open University recently has had a great interest in a proposal to start a course designed for Home Office staff on dealing with different religions. The short version of this is that, in fact, although these people are actually even busier than we are, if we can make our services available there is a ready demand. They're keen to hear what we've got to say, especially if we can make it practical. So we need to think about more realistic ways in which we can make that possible. So just to sum up then, I want to ask one, uh, a couple more questions. One is, do we really want to be public intellectuals? Are we prepared to put in the extra effort and learn to play the rules of that field? And if not, are we prepared to concede that role? And what becomes of relig- religious studies in that case? Thank you. I'm very pleased that we were able to bring you that recording. It was an interesting panel, but not particularly well attended on the day, unfortunately. We, we did have some lively questions. It was some, actually some really good discussion afterwards. Absolutely, yes. There was a lot of discussion in the room about, you know, what is religious studies and the sort of, you know, the, the role of that uh, field and organizations like the BASR as being umbrellas for area studies and things like that. And what, if indeed, might a particular RS perspective be? But we're very aware also that it was a very UK-centric discussion, so we'd be fascinated to hear any reactions from anywhere else or even from the UK, of course, as well. I believe that Jonathan Tuckett's going to be uh, responding to that Thursday, he had some comments in the room at the time, um, and he's going to write them up for you. But it's very good to be able to have the BASR panel there. The BASR obviously were our first sponsor and are still our headline sponsor six years later or something. Exactly. And on that topic, um, next week, um, we've got a very distinguished scholar speaking with Hans van Eigen. Uh, we've got Michael Pai um, talking about religious change in Japanese Shinto. Michael Pai was the, the first ever bulletin editor for the British Association for the Study of Religions and uh, later became secretary, president, and then was also president of the IAHR. We are also one of our sponsors, um, and he's 
been based in the UK and then in Germany and done an awful lot of work in Japan as well. So he's got a lot to say to disciplinary formation and to this specific topic of Japanese Shinto, which again is something that we've never, I think, touched upon, um, except perhaps in um, Jason Josephson's interview on um, the invention of religion in Japan. I think there was um, some Shinto content in there. Yeah, but it's wanted to cover more and just haven't really been able to for whatever reason. We need to make more of an effort at the IAHR in 2020 to try and get some more Asian scholars involved. But perhaps also if you're a listener and you're based in Japan or somewhere else in Southeast Asia um, and you'd be prepared to do a few interviews for us, please do get in touch because that would be a wonderful contribution to our huge back catalogue of interviews. Absolutely. Since we've mentioned the BASR and IEHR, we should also mention the NAASR. We are also a headline sponsor. Um, and all our Patreon um, subscribers, currently 20 now, so it's creeping up. Thank you so much to everyone who's joined recently. That's um, a huge uh, benefit to the project, and it really allows us to consolidate things like having the transcription every week, which is a lot of work, but... You know, these little contributions, whatever you can give us, it all adds up and, uh, you know, makes us able to ensure that the project continues on uh, in the degree of quality to which you've become used to. So we'll be back next week with Michael Pye and Hans van Eigen and hopefully um, we'll be in person recording on our usual kit. And what have we got to say now, David? Thanks for listening. The Religious Studies Project is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. Brought to you by Founders and Editors-in-Chief Chris Cotter and David Robertson, and Managing Editor Thomas J. Coleman III. Our features are edited by Jonathan Tuckett, and our opportunities digest by Yana Shirley. Podcast transcription by Helen Bradstock, with audio assistance from Gregory Schneider and Samuel Ward. Social media managed by Ray Radford, and sales and marketing by Sammy Bishop. Don't forget, you can support the project using our Amazon.com.co.uk and .ca links, or by donating at patreoncom projectrs And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Google Plus, YouTube, iTunes, and other portals.